You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. Did you know that you are what you believe? The things that you hold most dear inside of you eventually come out in the things that you do in your life. Even when it comes to maybe the regular things of our daily world. Um, This summer, I got onto a plane and I flew to Europe. I went to Austria for a week. And every once in a while, when I'm kind of in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, this has happened multiple times, I kind of think about what's actually happening. You know, that I'm 35,000 feet up in the air in a tin can over a lot of water. There might be a ship under me, maybe not, but if we're going down, it's probably not going to see us anyways. But I, I put my trust in the, the whole science behind flying and the pilot and all that that goes with it. Enough faith that actually I'm willing to buy a ticket and step onto a plane and actually go somewhere. But I don't know if you knew uh, John Madden, the famous NFL coach and commentator for Monday Night Football for years. John did not have belief in flying. And he did not believe that even though the numbers prove that flying is really safe, it's probably the safest form of transport, you know, out there. It's probably even safer than walking. And, uh, you know, we've got all the stats for it. John did not believe that. And it's so, his belief in that was so strong that To go from game to game, to commentate on the game for Monday Night Football, he would take his big bus, which was, you know, all outfitted for him to be able to live and enjoy the road. And so if the game was in Pittsburgh, he's in Pittsburgh. And if the next game it's in San Francisco, on the road he went. His belief actually impacted his life. And the order of our belief matters as well. And we talked about that last week. Last week we talked about the great commandment which Jesus said was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus in that teaching is reminding us and was reminding the people who are listening that the order of things actually matters. Our trust in God is to be primary because that will then alter the choices that we make in life. It will change our habits and routines. C.S. Lewis in the book Letters of C.S. Lewis, and maybe you've heard this example before, he wrote it like this, a similar idea. He said, to love, to love you as I should, I must worship God as creator. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I have learned to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but they're increased. Lewis is saying, when we actually have the order of things right, we end up getting what we long for here on earth. And often we put those things first. We put the, the decisions or the people or, as he puts it, um, you know, our earthly dearest, whoever or whatever that is, first. 
And Lewis goes on to write that we end up losing out in the process. And so he, he is affirming what Jesus was teaching, and that is that the order of things matters. What you believe in matters and makes a difference. And in our passage this morning, we're going to be looking at two different beliefs of God. One that is a belief in the actions that we are called to do first, which will lead to a type of bondage. And the other is a life of faith, which ultimately leads to freedom. Bondage and freedom. Man, one sounds better than the other, doesn't it? It should just be that simple. I should just be like, the message is over. But Jesus gives us a teaching to help us think deeper about this because we don't often get it that quick. And we need to think more deeply about this. And so in our text this morning, Jesus begins by asking his own question. All this chapter, chapter 12, this is our fifth sermon in it now, and it's all been Religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees, people asking Jesus a question. And now Jesus says, okay, it's my turn to ask a question now. So let's look at the passage together in chapter 12, starting in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Excuse me. And the great throng heard him gladly. Okay, so we have to get a little bit technical to kind of understand what Jesus is doing here. Okay, so I hope that I'm clear enough on this. But Jesus, in his question is wanting the scribes and if there's Pharisees in the crowd or if there's people in the crowd to think about what they are actually hoping for. To think about what is this idea of Messiah, son of David, that comes into their thinking and into their minds. For probably hundreds of years, there had just been this ever-increasing expectation of a Messiah, that somebody would come, that the great deliverer for the nation of Israel would come, and the Messiah would be this, this leader that would lead the people again, like David, but it would be better. And the expectation was growing because the Roman world was expanding, and as it expanded, it It swallowed up the nation of Israel and all the land that they had. And so here they were, a people now, under Roman occupation. And so this rising expectation was like, maybe this is what God is doing. God is raising, is going to raise up a Messiah who will liberate us, will free us from the tyranny of Rome and from Caesar. And that was all that was like taking up their expectation, their messianic expectation. And so Jesus here is honing in on this term, son of David. Son of David. 
Because over the centuries, as the scribes had studied and written down the text, as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the religious leaders had studied it, this, this idea of son of David kept coming up. And you can look throughout the, the prophets, the major and the minor prophets, and you'll see this idea of a son of David keeps coming up. And in their imagination, it was this Messiah who would free them. And so Jesus' question is this, how can the scribes say that Christ, which is the Messiah, is the son of David? Jesus is like, what's the connection here between Messiah, son of David, and what is it all? Psalm 110. So if you have a Bible or a phone, just quickly go over to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. So that means it's a very important psalm. It has deep meaning for the nation of Israel itself, but also for us as Christians who are to understand what this idea of Messiah and Son of David means. So let's just read Psalm 110. It's only seven verses. It, it's got a lot going on here, but we'll read it out starting in verse one here. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So that's part of what Jesus is quoting right there is Psalm 110 verse 1. Verse 2 says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, the day of your power in holy garments, from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, there's a little clue for the Israelites reading this, like this is something beyond just an earthly leader because this is someone who's going to be a priest and he's going to be ruling forever. Verse 5 says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way before he will lift up his head. Here in Psalm 110, Jesus is quoting, and interestingly there, he's, it says he is quoting what David wrote that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So this is Old Testament scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit, something you can trust in. This is a message from God. And so Jesus says, God is doing something here, and he quotes verse 1. And why verse 1 is really important, and I kind of uh, parsed it out for us to, to understand what is going on here. And just this little phrase here, he's saying this, the Lord, and in your Hebrew Bible, in the Psalm version, you'll see it's all capitalized. That is Yahweh, God's personal name. God revealed, like the God that's revealed to Abraham and to Moses, that is Yahweh. And then he says, the Lord says to my Lord, my, that's David speaking, right? David's the author. But then he doesn't use the same Lord. He says, Lord, capital L, which is the word Adonai, which means sovereign one. So what is that all about? What is going on here? That's the question that Jesus wants the Pharisees to think about. What is David saying here? If the great expectation is some great ruler who would be like David but would be a little bit better and all their imagination could, could come up with was someone who would be able to kick out the Romans essentially. 
And Jesus is saying, what David is actually pointing to is someone who's not just going to be a ruler like him, but someone who would be his Lord. Someone who would be David's sovereign one. Who would do what? He would be a priest forever. And Psalm 110 says that he would be sitting at the right hand of the Father and that he would be executing judgment over the nations. So Jesus is trying to get the audience there to reimagine what this Messiah would actually be and who this Messiah would be. And the question that he's trying to get them to think about is this, are you open to God doing it his way? Are you open to God raising up the Messiah and accomplishing his purpose in his way? Jesus is trying to get the scribes to broaden their expectation and to increase their hope in what God could do. Kicking out the Romans was too small of a vision for what God is actually about. And so here, Jesus is coming again to the Pharisees and asking them, do you understand what God is doing? Now, the question for us this morning to consider is maybe not so much, you know, what does all this mean? Our expectation is not to have the Romans overthrown. You know, we like, okay, I'm not going to say that. (laughs) Um, You know, we're not worried about that, okay? That's not our expectation, being free from Roman rule. Our question maybe is more a question related to Adonai. Is God still sovereign in my life? Is God still ruler over all things? Is God still in the missed expectations of life, in the tragedy that comes our way, in the challenges and the hardness of life? Can I still trust in God. And like I said, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, not just in the Gospels. It's also in the epistles where the early church hung on to this promise that Jesus is actually the Messiah, and Jesus is that priest who will rule forever. Jesus is the sovereign one. And if you read Hebrews 1, that first chapter, it's full of Old Testament quotations and it's full of pieces of even Psalm 110. And Hebrews 1 verse 3 reminds us of who God is through the person of Jesus. It says this, He, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's Adonai, our sovereign one, who holds everything together. Even in the chaos of our life, God is doing that. And the question is, is our imagination, is our expectation, is our hope able to actually be put in him in the midst of the hardness of life? Or do we choose other means? So to help us understand that, okay, if we... Hopefully we've got a little grasp of what Jesus is trying to get us to think about. Jesus now is going to point out for us, and Mark is going to record for us, two different ways of living out. That unbelief or belief. And the first one is the temptation of the religious. So look at verse 38. 
And in his teaching, this is Jesus, in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers that they will re- and they will receive the greater condemnation. Here Jesus wants us to see what life looks like when we are in bondage to a religious system. And so he says, they are this, they are first driven by approval, right? What does it say there in the text? That they have these long flowy robes. So they walk around in the markets in these beautiful outfits so that everybody can see them. Uh, Historically, they would have been like these white robes. So they just pop, okay? They got the best looking outfits in the market. Everyone's like, man, I like that material. There's a scribe. He's amazing. They also like to get greeted. So people are greeting them in the streets. They get all kinds of attention, okay? They have the best seats. So in the synagogue, they are sitting right up at the front. Everybody is able to see them in any places of honor. So if there's a party, if there's something going on, they are center of attention. And they're loving that. It's a little bit intoxicating, right? If we're honest. We all love it a little bit when the attention is put on us, when, when suddenly like all kinds of little benefits come our way. We can look at the scribes and we can just, we could just point at them and say, it's on them. You know, they're loving it, but it's not on us. But when we're honest, we all kind of love it. We love the little perks. I remember a number of years ago, this is way back, Liz and I were flying back from California visiting family, and I think we were on passes because our, our, both our parents were working for airlines. And so economy happened to be full, so we got bumped up to business class. Maybe it was even first class. I can't remember. Business first class. And it was uh, New Year's Eve so it was, or January 1st or something like that. So it was like a little bit of a party in first class. I don't know if you've ever been in first class before, but they were like serving champagne to people. They came by with a cart and served us Sundays. They like made us a Sunday, you know? It was like right on the spot there. And there was, I think there was like fresh cookies and stuff. And as I, I remember sitting like in the nice, big, leather, cushy seats, I'm like, I can't go back to economy, man. <laughs> like, this is good, you know? This is my place. These are my people. This is where I belong because it's just nice, you know? The, the perks of life are good. And so when you look at the scribes and the Pharisees, don't too quickly cast judgment on them because all of them are getting what most of us are tempted towards and many of us even like. And specifically, this is like, this is probably a, a word for me, right? This, these, are, these are biblical scholars. These are people who study the scriptures and they're being tempted toward those very things. And so here, Jesus is saying their lives, these people who have put their faith in religion is, is driven by greed and the perks of life. And it's also driven by deception. So it says there that they are devouring widows' houses. So the scribes were involved in judgments and 
making laws and deciding how different laws were made. And it was well known that they would rig the system to get benefits for themselves, whether it was a rich person, a middle-class person, or a poor widow. And Jesus is saying, this is part of the fruit of their life. This is like the danger of being sucked into a false vision of what God is doing and what he wants to do through us. And no people at at any time have looked at someone taking advantage of a widow and said, that's a good thing. We don't see that as a good thing. Even in our world today, that's influenced by, you know, kind of like soft Darwinian evolution where the strongest should be the mightiest and should just make their way forward in society. We still see, and you can Google it. I Googled it this week. There's still old grannies and widows that are being scammed around the world for thousands and thousands of dollars. And no article is like, eh, survival of the fittest, man. Just the way it is. Everyone is saying, this is terrible. And here Jesus is calling it out. He's saying this is actually the fruit of a religious bondage to a a misguided view of what God is doing. And what does Jesus say? The one command that he gives to us is in verse 38. He says, beware. He says, here's what you need to take away from this little talk of mine. You need to beware of these people who bring this kind of mindset to their religious life. And Tim Keller, I think, usually puts it most succinctly, and it's been a few weeks since I quoted him, so we were due, okay? But he says this, the repentance that really changes your heart and your relationship with God begins when you recognize that your main sin The sin under the rest of your sins is your own self-salvation project. And that's what's going on here. These religious leaders are simply following their own religious system to somehow satisfy God, somehow satisfy their own pleasures. And in the midst of that, remember, we do what we believe. So in the midst of following that belief system, it has led them down a road that Jesus says, beware don't even go there. Don't go near to that because those are people who do not know God and their lives are showing it. Their lives are a, a, a testimony. Don't be drawn in by the nice clothes. Don't be drawn in by the great sermons, by the great prayers. Don't be pulled in by all that stuff. See it for what it is. Take a, take a look at what's going on in their lives and recognize the unbelief that is there, and the bondage that is given. And then Jesus, in this amazing moment, pauses to give his disciples and to give us a picture of what true belief actually can look like and what freedom in Christ, a a term that they wouldn't even have known yet, but that Peter and Paul would later write about freedom in Christ, what that actually looks like. And he does it through the example of a widow giving money. And I remember a number of years ago, someone said to me, and it wasn't even necessarily related to, to preaching, but it was just to talking to people. They were like, listen, don't talk about like personal things, people's kids, 
or their money. Those are landmines. Just don't go there, man. You know, if you want to keep good relationship with people, don't talk about those things. Jesus doesn't care about that, right? Jesus talks about anything he wants to, and at any moment, he will talk about whatever it takes to get across his message. And in our text today, he goes straight for money and how money actually reveals our faith or our disbelief in what God is doing. So look again at verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And verse 42 says, And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing in the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. So what's happening here? Jesus, again, for most of this chapter, has been at the Temple Mount and has been teaching in different spots. And now he sits down where people are giving to the work of the temple. So there was a section there where they had 13 different boxes, these, these large boxes, yay big, and they had what looked like a trumpet on the top. And this big trumpet would kind of move in like this, and people would put in their money, and it would slide into the box. And it would be used to purchase oil or incense or to pay for different costs at the temple. And so Jesus has kind of removed himself to the side and has plunked down with his disciples. The place is just filled with all kinds of people. And he is people watching. Have you ever done that before at the airport or something? He's just watching what's going on. The people that are there don't know that Jesus is watching, okay? They're not walking up looking at Jesus thinking like, He's going to write this down in the scriptures someday, or Mark will record it. They're just going about their business. They're just going about their regular routine at the temple. And here they come, many of them, to give money and to do it in a showy kind of way. And it's described to us there about how people are doing it. We've been looking at Mark now for over a year. And part of Mark's purpose in recording this gospel is... Not just to record the teachings of Jesus, not just to, you know, help us understand him, but it was actually to see what does, what do people's lives look like when they've actually experienced Jesus as king. Luke Timothy, in his book, The Real Jesus, writes this, a little bit of a long quote, but bear with me here. It says this, when talking about the Gospels, their fundamental focus is not on Jesus' wondrous deeds, I think it's supposed to be nor, nor on his wise words. Their shared focus is on the character of his life and death, and they all reveal the same patterns of radical obedience to God and selfless love toward other people. All four Gospels also agree that discipleship is to follow the same messianic pattern. They do not emphasize the performance of certain deeds or the learning of certain doctrines. They insist on living according to the same pattern of life and death shown by Jesus. What he's saying here in this book is what the Gospels are most concerned about 
is not that you understand everything about Jesus, all of his miracles, all of his teachings, because they say that like the whole earth couldn't capture everything that Jesus did. What they're trying to capture is this is what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes down to earth. These are what lives look like who have been touched by the king who was here. And Mark is like, we're recording. What does a changed life look like? Not theoretical, not just doctrines and ideas. We can like, we can argue over those things all day long, but it's what does a life look like that is convinced that God is at work and that Jesus is king. And so here, Jesus does that by showing us here is a life that is marked by dedication to God. This is not a life of hypocrisy. The earlier verses were a life of hypocrisy. This is a life of true devotion to God. And listen, all of us know it, and we probably all have friends who have been burned by the hypocrisy of Christians. It's toxic. It's deadly. So Jesus says here, our, like our eyes should be wide open and our ears should be wide open to this is what a person's life can look like who is fully devoted to God. And he does it through an example of money. So listen to these three things really quickly here. When it comes to this widow who gave her two copper coins, a penny, actually less than a penny, money shows us our trust in God. That's what Jesus is trying to show us here. This woman's belief is on display as she puts in those two thin little copper coins. And Jesus is saying, a life that is dedicated to God will manifest itself in certain ways. And so he says, the life that you're seeing now, this old widow is being, her dedication to God is being manifested in how she's actually using her money. She is more worried about her dedication to God than actually the consequence of what she's doing there. So money for this lady and for us shows us our trust in God. But secondly, this money shows us where we tend to play God. So many of us would even maybe be sitting there with Jesus watching that thinking, she's giving the last of her money. Is that really practical? What's she going to buy for dinner? Or maybe this was in the morning. I don't know. What's she going to buy for lunch? We're much more like pragmatic and we have learned to essentially control most of our lives by the money that we have. It's so easy for all of us to take what we earn and use it then to control at least what we feel is going to be the outcomes of our lives. And so we try to manage and we try to make good decisions and I'm all for that, okay? But here we see Jesus lifting up for us to look at and to ponder over a radical obedience. Totally radical. Dedicated to God alone. Thirdly here, money shows us what freedom can actually look like. And in this story, this widow showed us what total freedom in Christ looks like, especially when it comes to money. And I don't know if you've been to other traditions of churches before. The way that people collect money is, is 
totally varied, you know, and even when you go around the world, it's very different. I remember going to Zambia, and we went to a church service, and some of you have been to Zambia, you know this, you know, you, um, when it's the offering time, it's a big deal, man. They pull out this big box that's got all the different quadrants of the town written on there, so they know if you live, you know, if you live in Birdland, we know exactly how much you gave. Or if you live in the new neighborhood, we also know how much you gave. So everybody then, during a song, walks down the aisle and you put your money in your quadrant, in your box. And then everybody goes to sits down and they come and they take a look at what's in the box. They want to verify how's this going. So they take a look in and they're like, okay, let's do round two, people. That was not too impressive. And so we do round two and everybody gets up and they come and they give a little bit more, okay? And that's, that's cool. Like that's just a totally different tradition. And what they're doing here is also a different tradition. There's all these boxes laid out and people are coming. And Jesus is saying, in this kind of average way of giving to God, we can get caught up in the deception that is actually happening. All kinds of money is going in, like big jingling. And you're like, whoa, God is like at work here or something. Someone is doing something big. Massive pouches being emptied out. Big smiles. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't be distracted by that. He's like, I want to show you what real radical obedience looks like. And so in the chaos of the moment, he just puts the brakes on the disciples and says, Look at this. Check this out. This old widow comes. Someone who none of us would think God is going to use to do something major in. She's in rags. That's how they know that she's a widow. And here she comes and gives the last that she has. And Jesus says, that right there, that's a beautiful thing. That's the kingdom of God come right down for us to see. And Jesus says, in that moment... Will you pause and see that that's what radical obedience looks like? We're used to like 10%, you know, tithe. That's what it means. That's a, you know, that's a great model. But honestly, it is a weak model because it allows you to count. Have you, have you done it and you could maybe feel pride or have you not done it and you feel condemnation? We use it as a tithe. We use it because we need a, a crutch because we're weak people. But let's admit, it's a crutch. What we've been called to is radical freedom in Christ. And that's what the New Testament says when it comes to giving, radical freedom. You give as God leads you to give. And here, Jesus says, this woman is giving it all. And so she puts in her two copper coins. And Jesus says in the last phrase here, if you look at the text, the last phrase of verse 44, it says... Well, let me just read verse 44. For they all contributed out of their abundance. So they gave, even though they had tons more. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. And that word live is the Greek word bios, bios, B-I-O-S, which means life. Essentially, Mark is saying she gave her life. She gave everything. And Mark is saying, and Jesus is teaching us, she is actually living out what we learned about last week. Remember the, the great Shema, the great commandment? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with your full being. And I think I said last week, none of us can really do that. We're just, we're, we're weak and we, we don't fully do that. And now Jesus is saying, here's an example of someone who is like all in, man. Radical obedience. But it's not like what we think. It's not like doing something exotic. It's not something like starting an NGO, something major. It is a simple obedience to God. That is the radical obedience that Jesus calls for. And so this morning, as we ponder the life of this widow who none of us know the name of, but we may meet someday, Jesus says, just think about what she's done. And on those streets where Jesus was doing all this teaching, in just a few days in our text, we're going to get into it in the coming weeks, in just a few days, Jesus would also do the most radical thing ever. He would be beaten. He would be stripped. He would be nailed to a cross. His blood would be on those same streets that he's teaching on here all in radical obedience to die in our place so that we could experience a new relationship with God and we could live in a a freedom that the world has no understanding of. And knowing that all that was coming in just a week's time for Jesus, he says, I'm not thinking about myself. I want you to see what this woman has done and follow her example of obedience and dedication to God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the testimony of this widow. Thank you for the teaching of Jesus. And God, I pray that you would allow us to live in the freedom that we have in Christ when it comes to the choices in life, when it comes to our finances, when it comes to all areas. Lord, we pray that we would learn and grow to submit every area to your life and experience the blessing and joy of radical obedience to Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.